But it's good to be here with you and to worship with you. Normally on Sunday mornings, I worship with the Corwin's grandson, uh, Frank and Barbara's grandson, Edmund. Uh, Edmund doesn't know me because he's like one. Uh, but uh, uh, his parents go to church there too, their daughter, but, but mostly their grandson, uh, and uh, that's the important thing. And I, I work with uh, Leonard Liu. We're on the same team at uh, Mission to the World, uh, U.S. operations where we seek to promote missions and uh, get people engaged in missions. If you don't know Leonard, he's also known by his daughter, Allie, and so, uh, who works here. So we're all kind of known by our kids or grandkids these days, that's kind of how it is. And so, but it's a, it's a great privilege to come and to be with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 117. Uh, before we look there, I um, share a little bit about, you know, we have some phenomenal work still going on in Ukraine. I know you've been praying. We just prayed moments ago uh, for Ukraine. And Mission to the World has been there in Ukraine since the 1990s. Because of that, uh, we have a, a very strong, healthy network of pastors and churches uh, besides our about 15, 16 missionary families, that, uh, in, individuals that we have there. And so when the war happened, we already had a network of people to work with. We didn't have to go find partners. We didn't have to worry about where the money's going. We already had a network. And so the churches have been incredibly generous uh, in giving to this effort. And, uh, and, and I know your church has been part of that. And I want to thank you for that. While I was posting about that on Facebook, about uh, just the needs of Ukraine, and one of my cousins uh, responded and said, hey, Mark, uh, you know, I know, I know they need things in Ukraine, but there are a whole lot of needs here in the United States. Why are we talking about Ukraine when we have so much that we need to do here? And uh, I thought that was a great question. In fact, one of the, the questions I get asked most often as I go to churches, and even as a pastor, I get asked uh, this a lot, was, was, you know, why should we be concerned about missions? I mean, people didn't put it that bluntly, but that, that was kind of the call. In fact, I remember one mission Sunday years ago in my church, uh, a man owned his own business. We had a mission speaker come in, somebody like me, and I asked him how, what he thought of it. He goes, well, I just don't see how it related to me. I'm running a business here. I don't, I don't see what this has to do with me. And uh, you may be wondering that. You know, after all, uh, the state of Virginia, it's not like it's exactly a reached people. You know, it's not like the work's done here. Uh, estimates are that about 40% of the people in Virginia attend any sort of religious service of any kind. And probably about half of those are evangelical Christian churches. So you might think then that means that 80% of your, your friends and neighbors in the Richmond area are unchurched. So, so why are we talking about the world when Richmond has needs? Well, it's not an either or. And I think we see this in this passage of Psalm 117 that we're about to read. This answers our question about why we, us, together, should be concerned about the nations. Psalm 117 answers that question. Now, before we look at it, uh, we're gonna read the entire Psalm, the whole thing. Uh, it's two verses. It is the shortest Psalm in the Bible. It is two chapters away from Psalm, Psalm 119, which guess what? Is the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, so if you're reading a chapter a day, this one's gonna be short. If you get Psalm 119, uh, take, take your time. Uh, the other thing about this is the exact middle chapter of the Bible. Uh, there are, um, oh, I just forgot. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible and it's the 595th, so it's the exact middle. So in the providence of God, this is at the very center of God's message, at least in our English versions of the Bible, of what God 
uh, has for us to say. The other thing is we look at the psalm, uh, you think, how are we gonna, how's this apply to us? Well, remember that the psalms are the songbook for the people of God. And in the Old Testament, this is what they would be singing in their worship services, just as we were singing moments ago. So this is a, is a psalm that would be sung in worship to God, but as you look at the psalm, I want you to notice it is not sung to God, it's actually sung to the nations. And so that gives you a little bit of context as we read this psalm. So let's look at Psalm 117. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would come and you would meet with us. Uh, even as we've been worshiping you today, we, we thank you that you are here by your Holy Spirit uniting us together. And now, O oh Lord, we pray that we would hear from you in your word, uh, that you would uh, speak to our hearts. Your word is true, uh, but our hearts and our minds are often foggy. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break through, that we might see Jesus and worship you truly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this psalm is a call to worship, and it's a call to worship that Israel, the people of God, would sing, but they're calling the rest of the nations to worship. Now, the word nations here, later on in the New Testament, the Greek word used for this is the word ethne. It doesn't just mean like political states, you know, like the United States or Canada or something like that. It would include all the various ethnicities, that's ethne, uh, ethnicities. So that would include all the various people groups. And so Israel, is singing out to all the, other kind of, all the other people groups who do not worship the Lord, calling them to worship the Lord. So we're singing in the psalm, we, the people of God, are singing to the nations. Now, why are we singing to the nations? First thing we see in the psalm about why we sing to the nations is because God loves us. We're singing about God's love for us. Verse one is that call uh, of God's people to join, uh, to invite the rest of the world to sing. Verse two gives us the reason why. Look at it again. For great is his steadfast love towards us. We've already in this morning talked about God's steadfast love as, and in other parts of the service. But that word steadfast love here is the a translation of a Hebrew word that's often difficult to translate. In fact, it's translated different ways in different Bibles. Uh, you may not know much Hebrew. I bet you know at least one word. You probably know the word shalom, right? Uh, it's the word means peace, flourishing, wholeness, things being made right. The other Hebrew word, which is good to know, is this one, and it's the word hesed. And it, it's translated loving kindness, steadfast love. The reason it's translated so many different ways is because it's, there's no real English equivalent of this word. It's a very rich term. Uh, it doesn't just mean love, it means steadfast love. It doesn't just mean kindness, it means uh, dependable kindness. It's not just loyalty, it's covenant loyalty. It's, it's that love that will not let you go, and it's particularly a love that is in action. So usually it's describing the love of a stronger party who comes to the aid of a weaker party who's in distress. And so that is what God's love is towards us. It's this hesed, it's this, it's this active love that comes to us who are in dire straits in our time of desperation. Furthermore, it doesn't just say that uh, God's love is steadfast or that it's great, but that it is active. 
Again, if you look at verse, verse two, it says, for uh, great is his steadfast love towards us. Actually, uh, it, that can be translated that God's love has prevailed over us or protected us. Uh, or as uh, Eugene Peterson translates it, that his love has taken over our lives. So, so the image here then is of a love that is aggressively active. It's not just uh, an emotion, a warm feeling. It's not the grandfather sitting in the rocking chair who smiles sort of benevolently over the grandchildren. It is a pursuing love. It, it is a love that tracks us down. It's, it's the love that we see in Jesus Christ. Although he's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go down and track down the one. It's, it's, it's Jesus who came and took on human flesh, became a, a human being in every way, entered our world to die for us, even while we were still sinners. Remember, Christ died for us, not because we were looking for him. It wasn't, he doesn't respond to us. God is the initiator who comes tracking us down as his lost sheep. And it's that love that goes after us even while we're still sinners, while we're enemies of God, God comes and he pursues us with his love in Jesus Christ. And then when he loves us, Jesus, when you became a Christian, not only does Jesus bring us to himself in such a way that our sins are forgiven. See, Christian, here's the good news. When you become a Christian, you're not just forgiven. If you were just forgiven, you'd only be a pardoned criminal. That's not all you are. You're not just forgiven. You're not just in a state of, of neutral state. You now are given Christ's righteousness so that you're righteous in the righteousness of Christ. Furthermore, not only are you righteous in the righteousness of Christ, you're now adopted into the family of God. So we see the transition. Once we're lost, we're sinners, alienated from God, far from him, not pursuing him. Christ dies for us. He forgives us so we have no debts. Then he gives us his righteousness, elevating us to being holy in his sight. And then he adopts us as his children. This is the love of God that we sing about. Furthermore, this is a love that he says endures forever. The second half of verse two. His love endures forever, which again is very different oftentimes from our experience of love. We're used to love that starts hot and wanes over time. My guess is that everybody in this room has been touched by divorce. Every, you know, either you've been divorced, family members have been divorced, child's been divorced, everybody here has been touched by divorce. You, you were there at the wedding where they stood right here and they said, till death do us part, and yet they parted. And, and so we see love that, that goes. We, we've seen this uh, over you know, relationships, friendships, people who are, who are gonna be friends for life, who are no longer our friends. Again, I bet everybody here has that. Over the last few years, I, I've seen over politics, children and parents who can't eat Thanksgiving dinner together again. That has happened. So we're, we're used to this love that, that, that is, is fracturable, that, that is fragile. But God's love is a love that endures forever. And here's the reason why. God's love does not depend on you. God's love solely depends on him. It is a love that he initiates. You did not earn it. You cannot deserve it. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you cannot lose it. A number of years ago, a young couple came to see me. They had had, uh, and I didn't know, they'd had significant marriage problems. And uh, what had happened, this, this young man had grown up in the church 
been involved in youth group, uh, been a leader in this youth group, gone to the Christian college, been involved in ministry. I mean, he was, uh, he was your church boy, you know what I mean? You know, you know, just your typical church kid, like the leader in the youth group type of thing. Gets married, um, but he has a secret. He has sin in his life that nobody knows about, including his wife. One day, they're both getting up, going to work. Uh, she leaves before he does. He's sitting on the couch, putting on his shoes and socks. She comes home that night. He's still on the couch, sitting in the exact same spot when she left. He hadn't moved all day. His face is swollen. He'd been crying all day long. He just couldn't handle it anymore. And he, and he confessed to her these things that he had done and been doing. And he was so ashamed. And uh, she was shocked. She was hurt. But she forgave him. She wanted the marriage to work. And so they came to see me. And they walked in. And you can just see, I mean, you can just see the shame on him like a blanket. And he tells me uh, the things he's been doing. And um, it's bad, you know, it's bad. And uh, so I'm a pastor. Uh, I've just learned over the years, you just got to be truthful with people. You just got to shoot straight. There's no point sugarcoating it. And so I just said, look, God loves sinners. Christ died for sinners. You're in Christ. You're righteous. You're forgiven. You're holy. That's the gospel truth. I don't know if you believe me or not. But I think what had happened, for all these years, he kept up this pretense of having it together. And as long as you don't recognize your sin, you cannot recognize grace. You, you, cannot, you cannot understand grace unless you understand the depth of your sin. At the same time, I think it's because we, if you don't understand grace, you're not really capable of facing your sin. It's just too much. And, and the, the reason for that is to think for many of us, we really don't believe that God's loving kindness is all that awesome. We think it's good. We just don't think it's awesome. And, and because we, we, we've downplayed it, a, a friend of mine, Bill Tell, puts it this way. He says, most Christians think of God's grace in the same way we think about insurance co-pays. The insurance covers 80% of your bill, but it's up to you to cover the other 20% or 10% or 5%. And so, so what happens then is, is, is you look at this, you go, Jesus died for my sins for most of it, but it's up to me to prove that I'm really in it. It's up to me to, to show I work. It's up to me to show that I'm, I'm genuine. And what happens is when you begin to live that way, how do you know if you're ever doing enough? I mean, what, what's good enough? For, for that 5%, for that 1%. You can't do the 1%. See, here's the gospel truth. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The key word in all of those things is the word alone. And if you add anything to it, anything to it, uh, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was Walter Marshall or somebody else. They said, if you add any measure of works at all, it creates a, a measure of mistrust between us and God, because you're never going to know if you're good enough. It's only, only if you believe it's by grace alone. And that's what we're singing about. We're, we're not going around telling the world how, how to be good like us. You know, that's not what a Christian testimony is. The Christian testimony is not, come be good like I am, come be how I, the Christian testimony is, I am a sinner who is lost and Christ died for me. 
You see how different this is from any sort of cultural imperialism? Oftentimes people think the missions is cultural imperialism. Not at all. We're not saying come be like us. We're saying we're a wreck and if Christ loved me and forgave me, then he can love and forgive you too. That's our witness. And that's why we sing. And the more that grace grips our heart, the more we're gonna sing. And, and the more we truly believe it, the more passionate we're going to be. So we sing because God loves us. We could go on that one all day. Um, my favorite part, so, but we can't, we don't have time. So secondly, we sing because the, uh, to the nations because God loves them. Notice this, that God is commanding us through this word, by example, to sing to the nations because God has always been passionate about the nations. We see this from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, God calls the nation of Israel to be his people. He says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll be a God to you and to your descendants after you. He chooses Israel out of all the other nations of the earth, but he does not choose Israel instead of the other nations. He chooses Israel for the sake of the other nations. It was God's plan all along to bring salvation to the nations. And we see this because in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, he says to him, I'll, I'll bless you and bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, Abraham, my purpose in choosing you, I'm not choosing you instead of the nations, I'm choosing you so that through you and your, and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In fact, this promise of God to bless the nations is so emphatic that God repeats it five times in the book of Genesis. Now, if God says something over and over, I mean, think about this, parents. If you say something five times to your kids, you're hoping they get it. Five times, God says, look at this, Genesis 12, 3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 18, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 22, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 26, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 28, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Get the point. I mean, he pounds it. He pounds it. it is, it's, it's about bringing salvation to the nations. That is always his plan. That's why when Jesus shows up, and remember John chapter three, Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night, and he's wondering exactly who Jesus is, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, Pharisee, Israelite, Jesus says to him, for God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son. Not what he says. I mean, this was shocking. God so loved the world. It's not about Israel, it's about all the nations. And again, nations, think of all the ethnicities of the earth. That God's plan is to bring salvation to them. So here's the point. God loves the world and so should we. God loves the nations, and so should we. Every tribe, every language group, every ethnicity, every culture, including our own. So the mission of God's people, from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, is an invitation uh, to, uh, to, to, to the world to join in singing him. That's why Psalm 117, we sing to the nations. So let me state something obvious. If we're going to sing to the nations, we have to go to the nations. We can sing here all day long, nobody's gonna hear us, right? I mean, the only way 
for the nations to hear us sing and invite them to join in the song is for us to go. And that is why Jesus in Matthew 28 makes explicit what is implicit in Psalm 117. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And by the way, there's some who point out to the, the Greek, it's not the, it's, go is not a command. If you wanna talk Greek, I'll be glad to argue that point with you. I think it actually is a command uh, to go. But the point here is to make disciples. But notice this, that the Great Commission is not just to make disciples. You can do that locally, but that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. It is by definition expansionistic. Uh, and, and again, Jesus emphasizes this again in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where he tells uh, the, the, the new forming church, he says that you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. And that is what we are called to do and engage as God's people. It's why 20% of your budget is engaged in missions, both locally and internationally, because that's the mission that God's given to the church. It's, it's, it's the critical function. It's not an add-on. It's, it's not an extra. It's not something we do with our spare time. It's the mission of the church. In 2020, when the COVID lockdowns were at their worst, there were obviously very bad uh, here. We were having to deal with it. I can't believe, Sean, you moved here in the middle of a pandemic. The last two years, probably the longest decade of your life is my guess. Uh, it's just been hard. Take care of your pastor. That's all I gotta say. Because uh, pandemic's been hard on pastors. But it's been hard on everybody. But around the world, it was particularly brutal in certain parts of the world because uh, people were not allowed to go to work. They weren't getting food. Uh, so admission to the world, we took up a compassion offering and many people gave to that. Uh, part of that compassion offering went to one of our national partners in South Asia in an undisclosed area. Uh, this is an area where even in recent years, people have been murdered for being Christians. Churches have uh, been attacked. Uh, Christians have suffered deep persecution. That local pastor who's a partner of ours took the money and he bought rice, bean, lentils, salt, just your very basic food, and he began to distribute it to their neighbors, 561 of their neighbors, mostly Muslim and Hindus, people who'd been persecuting the church. From that food distribution, uh, ended up 143 Hindus professed faith in Christ and were baptized. 143, now the cynic in me would say, well, of course they became Christians, you fed them. I mean, you, you, you bought them. That's not what happened. Because when these people became Christians, they left the in-group and now became part of the out-group and became part of that persecuted minority. In other words, by becoming Christians, their lives did not get better, they actually got worse. So why did they become Christians when their lives were getting worse? Because they heard the proclamation of the gospel. They heard about the love of God and when they saw these Christians living it out, loving their enemies, they said, this must be true. And they embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior. That was 2020, a year later, there are two churches there, they're going strong. The pastor held a seminar, 10 Muslims came to the seminar, four of those were baptized and ended up joining the church. Baptism, symbol of marking of leaving the old life, going into the new. Incredible what's happening. And, and, and the reason, 
we engage in those things is because God so loved the world that he gave his son. He didn't just give the son for us, he gave the son for the world so that we might take the gospel to the nations. So we sing because God loves us, we sing because God loves uh, the nations, and thirdly, we sing because we love God. Why do we gather for worship? Uh, you might come out of duty, you might come saying like it's just something you ought to do, you might come out of habit, but the ultimate motivation for the Christian to come and worship is because God deserves it, right? He, he's worthy of his praise. It, it, he deserves the glory. We, we're giving him the honor that is due his name because it's unjust when someone takes the glory of another. For, for someone to say, uh, you know, write a book and to find out that, that someone, they'd stolen the material or stolen someone's idea or anything like that, it is unjust. God created this beautiful world. I uh, mentioned earlier that you know, coming into to Richmond from Colorado Springs, uh, the color of Colorado Springs is brown. It's like high desert. Uh, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just brown. And so you're flying in here and you go, whoa, look at that green. It's just gorgeous and the water and, and it's just, just amazing. And to think that people are saying that sort of happened. It was an accident. I mean, you give glory to the artists who did it. Now, it's not like I live in a bad place, open my window and see Pikes Peak, which is it's pretty nice. But, um, <laughs> but and, and you think, it's just an accident? That's not right. Don't you think God deserves the glory for what he's done and for what he's done in our lives and saving us and redeeming us? And, and, and so, so we praise him because he deserves it. And when he doesn't get the glory, it's not right. So I live in Colorado Springs, hope to the uh, Olympic Training Center. So there are Olympic athletes throughout our city, including our neighborhood. And when I run through the park, sometimes there'll be Olympic athletes. So I tell people I run with the Olympians and um, <laughs> like I'm running, they go by. Uh, and, uh, uh, but a guy I used to live across the street uh, was uh, a wrestling coach, but before that, <clears throat> excuse me, he had actually won the gold medal in wrestling in the Olympics, which I'm thinking if I won a gold medal I mean, I'm like walking around town by that thing all the time. <coughs> he had to actually tell me about it. Well, I was asking him to tell me about it, but actually what happened originally, he got the silver. And it turns out though, that the guy who got the gold, they discovered had been cheating by using performance enhancing drugs. Now, I'm not gonna mention the fact that the guy was Russian because that has nothing to do <laughs> with this story, <coughs> except this, that, uh, um, let me get water, I'm sorry, just all of a sudden, I thought I could handle the humidity. Um, I apologize. So I'm asking him, I said, so when you um, got your silver medal, or got the medal, so when they had the medal award ceremony, who stood on top, you or the Russian? He goes, well, the Russian. They played the national anthem. They play yours, they play his. They go, well, they played his. I said, man, that's not right. I think that's horrible. He goes, Mark, I got the gold. I go, I don't care. I'm upset. I was more upset than he was. But don't you think that's wrong? The cheater gets the national anthem. The cheater gets the podium. The, the winner doesn't get the glory. It's, it's not right. It's not just. The same thing is true about God. If I'm jealous for the Olympians' gold medal, shouldn't we be jealous for God's? I mean, that's, that's, he deserves it. Not only that, when, when you find something delightful, the natural response 
is to praise. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, whenever you find something you delight in it, you will naturally praise it. So for example, you eat a piece of chocolate cake. What do you do? Mmm. You're, you're praising the cake. That's what you're doing. And not only that, he said, Lewis says, not only will you praise it, but you'll want to share it with others. Oh, you got to try this. You know, have you, you read this book? Have you seen this movie? Have you, I mean, you, you, know, you find something good, you want to share it with others, right? That's, just, that's a natural thing. And so when we taste the goodness of God, we're going to want to share it with others. It, it's because we want others to experience that uh, goodness as well. I have three great loves. I love my Savior. I love my family, really do, adore them. And I love Krispy Kreme donuts. And, and sometimes it's not in that order. We just got a Krispy Kreme in Colorado Springs. I'm so excited. Uh, well, uh, one time we are doing a, a vacation Bible schools in Orlando. And we had a Krispy Kreme there. And, and um, I overheard this conversation of this woman. She's saying she'd never had a hot Krispy Kreme. And I'd never met this woman, by the way. Um, I dropped my box, we're cleaning up, and it's late in the afternoon. I walk over, so wait a second, you've never had a hot Krispy Kreme? She goes, no, I, you know, I had one at the grocery store, and it was just kind of okay. And I said, no, no, no. No, if you're gonna eat a grocery store Krispy Kreme, you might as well get a Dunkin' Donut. It's not, it's not the same, you know? It, it, it said, and she goes, no, she just wasn't interested. I said, no, look, I happen to know that they're hot from five to 10, and, and so, the fact that I knew that off the top of my head was kind of terrifying, but I did. And they're hot from five to 10. And if you go, because it's almost five o'clock, if you go, you can get a hot one right now. And she's like, oh, I go, look, I'll drive you. You know, uh, you, you've got to experience this. Because I knew if she ever tasted a high Krispy Kreme donut, it would change her life. I mean, she would, it would, the, the sheer delight of it. Now, why are we not the same way about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we have greater confidence in the sweetness of a donut than the sweetness of our Savior? And, and, and so when we're confident in that, see, ultimately our problem is not a duty problem. It's a heart problem. That we need to remember God's goodness so that we sing about God's goodness so that we can invite the nations to join in that goodness. So, so that's why, you know, I implore you to, implore, to remember how good God is. The more you delight in God's goodness, the more you're going to want to share his goodness with others. Um, last fall, I was talking with a woman uh, who refused to pray a prayer that I'm about to share with you. Someone had challenged her to pray this prayer, and the prayer is simply this. Okay, God, I believe in your mission, so... Um, I'll tell you what, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll give whatever you want me to give. And someone had challenged her to pray that prayer. And she goes, I'm not praying that. God might take me seriously, right? And, uh, and so, uh-uh. And uh, have you ever been challenged to pray anything like that? You ever thought like her? Oh, come on, you have. I, I've thought, thought exactly that. And uh, uh, by the way, she's in Spain now. Uh, and so... <laughs> So that may, because I want to challenge you to pray that prayer. And you might be thinking, no, because I'm afraid God's going to, you know, if I say, here, God, here I am, use me, he's going to use me. What does that tell you about our view of God that we think like that? That God's going to use me, because you use that word use in a couple different ways, like exploitive. If I say, God, use me, he's going to exploit me, he's going to take advantage of me. I don't want to be exploited. I want to do what I want to do. I want to, you know, what does that tell you 
about how we think about God. Is God an exploitive God? Is that what he's really like? You know, Jesus said, if your son were to come to you and ask for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? Or if he ask you for a, a, you know, a fish, would you give him a snake? You, you wouldn't do that. And if you, although you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our Father know how to give good gifts to us? Do you believe that God's loving kindness endures forever? Do you believe that his steadfast love has overtaken your life? Do you really believe that God is a good father? Now, I believe it, and I struggle with unbelief. And so what I'm asking you to do is, I'm asking you to pray by faith. Pray by faith that God is who he says he is and who you've been saying he is all morning, and that he is a good God, and therefore God, if you're a good father and you love me, and you love me so much that you sent your son to die for me, and if through Jesus Christ I am now been translated from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, and if I uh, was dead in my sins and now holy and righteous in Christ, if all of that is true, and if that is true, then I can still stand before you and say, okay God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll give whatever you want me to give because I believe you love me because your love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come and we confess, first of all, our, our sin of unbelief. Lord, even as we worship, even as we talk, confess our sin, even as we heard about the forgiveness of our sins, uh, we still struggle to believe that you really love us. And because we wonder if you really love us, we're, we're hesitant to share your love with others because we're not confident in it. And we're certainly hesitant to put our life on the line and say that you can do with us whatever you want to do. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for unbelief. Help us to believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help us to see that you are a good God and that you love us. And so, Lord, because of that, by faith, Lord, we will pray even now Lord, we will go wherever you want us to go. And Lord, we mean that. Our knees may be shaking, but we will pray that wherever you want us, O oh Lord. We will do whatever you want us to do, no matter what it is, because we trust you. And you would never call us to do something that is ultimately not in our, our best interest or for your glory. So Lord, we'll do whatever you want us to do. And we'll give whatever you want us to give. And we do all this because, Lord, we believe that your love endures forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.